listening to the Stories of Transformation podcast. I'm your host, Bakhtasha Hadi. In each episode, we will talk with some of the most inspiring and courageous individuals who share their unique stories about how they overcame hardships, learned their craft, and found their purpose. These conversations are meant to inform, entertain, and inspire. Okay, happy listening. Welcome to the Stories of Transformation podcast. Today we'll be speaking with Oliver Perkovich. Oliver is the founder and director of Skateistan, which is an award-winning international organization with skate schools and programs running in Afghanistan, Cambodia, and South Africa. Skateistan's programs focus on girls and children from low-income backgrounds. Through its innovative program, Skateistan aims to give young people the opportunity to become leaders for a better world. Skateistan is making international headlines because the documentary film entitled Learning to Skateboard in an Active War Zone, If You're a Girl, won the Oscar last week. This documentary tells the story of a group of Afghan girls and the impact that Skateistan has had on their lives. Show notes for this episode will include where you can watch the documentary and how you can support Skateistan. In this episode of Stories of Transformation, we get the backstory from Oliver on how he went from skating as a fun and challenging hobby to founding an international organization that is transforming the lives of at-risk youth, especially young girls, through skateboarding and arts-based education. His story shows us the powerful effects of giving young girls from different ethnic and socioeconomic backgrounds a chance to freely express themselves in a safe environment. It also reminds us that you don't need to be a doctor to save lives. You just need to be authentic in what you love and share it with the world. I really enjoyed this touching conversation with Oliver, and I hope you do too. So without further ado, I bring you Oliver Perkovich. Oliver, welcome to the podcast. How are you today, sir? I'm doing very well, thank you. Great to be here. It's good to have you. Now, where are you sitting, sir? I'm in Berlin, in Kreuzberg, in Germany, and we've had our headquarters here since 2012. Okay, wonderful. Now, Oliver, can you tell us what you do? I'm the founder and executive director of Skaterstan, and that's a nonprofit that started in Kabul, Afghanistan. And we use uh, skateboarding and education to transform children's lives. Gosh, that's fantastic. Now, I have to tell you, this isn't our first conversation. We had a conversation once before via Skype in 2015. You and I have a mutual friend, uh, Banafsha. Oh, yes. Banafsha is a great friend of mine. Yeah, and you and I spoke in 2015 while you were, uh, I, couldn't, I think you were also in Europe at the time too, but this is our second conversation. And so uh, you've been busy since then. You've had a lot to do. And so Skatistan is no longer just in Afghanistan. It's in Cambodia and it's in South Africa, correct? That's, that's right. We, um, the, the first school started in Kabul. Um, the one after that was in Cambodia, in Phnom Penh. And then we had, uh, then we built the second school in Afghanistan, in, in Mazar Sharif, in northern Afghanistan. And then we added uh, the, the skate school in Johannesburg, in South Africa. Oh, that's amazing. So I want to get to all of that. But before that, before we get to these, to these different schools that you've built across these different countries, I'd love to get to know uh, you a little bit, what your background is, how you got started. So Oliver, can you tell us uh, where you're from and where you were raised and uh, maybe how you fell in love with skateboarding? So I'm from Australia, from Melbourne, and I grew up in Australia, but also in Papua New Guinea. That was my uh, primary school years. Uh, My parents were both from Europe, so my mum's German and my father was born in 
what's now Croatia. So, yeah, European parents, uh, a very uh, stable, uh, <laughs> very easy place to grow up in Australia and a very exciting place to grow, grow up in, in Papua New Guinea. And I got, I first came into contact with a skateboard through my cousin who was about 10 years older than me. And he was a skateboarder in the 70s. And he had a, he had a skateboard in the corner of his room in 1980. Uh, just before we went to Papua New Guinea, I was five years old and I saw the skateboard in the, in the corner and I picked it up and wanted to, wanted to ride on it. And uh, I was so fascinated with the thing. He he actually gave it to me, and I brought that skateboard with me to to Papua New Guinea. And um, yeah, that was the that was the start of skateboarding. But it was it was funny skateboarding in Papua New Guinea because I had no reference to what anybody else in the world was was doing with it. Oh, how interesting! Yes, or some. I think there was like a BMX Plus magazine from like very early 80s, 1982 or something, and you could see people with ramps and doing things with, with BMXs and maybe there was some sort of skateboarding references in that, but it was, it was, it was very much uh, my, my own imagination as to what, what could actually be done with a skateboard. So I didn't, I didn't progress very far in those few years living in Papua New Guinea with it. Oh, that's really fascinating. So you had no, you had no magazines to reference. You had no skate films to reference. You didn't have other skaters to reference. So your only reference point was BMX biking and ramps. Well, even even then, I I find it hard. I can't really remember. I mean, BMXs were were popular with kids that were my age in the early early eighties, uh, at least in, yeah. in the tiny little uh, bubble of the international school in in Papua New Guinea where I went. But we did travel at times to Australia and to Europe, and so maybe I saw some saw some other references. But what really kicked it off with the skateboarding for me was coming back to Australia in, in 1985 um, and then actually going to the movies for the very first time. I'd never been to the cinema before, uh, before I was 10, and the first movie that I saw was Back to the Future. And... Uh, that really kicked it off for me, and from then it was like, oh wow, you know, this skateboard thing, I've got to, I've got, I've got to try it again. Because Marty McFly was really ripping it on those streets, wasn't he, to and from school? Yeah, that was a that was a cool cool character, and um, yeah, I kind of wanted to be like him, so I, I sort of I started to try to make some more skateboards myself, uh, simply by um, getting a piece of wood and cutting it out in the shape of the skateboard and buying uh, roller skates, at, uh, like secondhand roller skates at a market and hacksawing them in, in half and putting, you know, two wheels on one side and two wheels on the other. And uh, so that then my brother, who was four years younger than me, could also have a, have a skateboard and we could both skateboard together. I had the good one, he had the bad one. That's hilarious. So you fell in love with skateboarding, it sounds like, almost immediately. So let me ask you this, because this is important, I think. What was it about skateboarding that made you uh, fall in love with it? Like, what was the feeling that it gave you? I think what what really attracted to me to skateboarding straight away was simply how difficult it was. And I, I remember very, very distinctly falling down pretty hard um, with a, the board just flying out from under, underneath me um, that first time I took the skateboard out. 
and just lying there on the ground, I was thinking to myself, I'm gonna, I'm gonna get good at this. Yeah, as an adventurous young boy, I was, I think I was used to things going easier and <laughs> being able to do the things that I wanted to, wanted to do and, and skateboarding seemed, uh, seemed difficult. So I think it was this, I think it was the challenge, uh, of this is something that's hard and this is something that I want to master. Also, the feeling of uh, of skateboarding was was definitely something that was very fun. Yeah, yeah. So let's talk about how you transitioned from uh, from Australia to eventually getting to Afghanistan, where you stayed for a number of years. So how did that process look like? How did you get yourself to Afghanistan? Pretty long one. Um, I think I'd uh, travelled to over forty countries before before going to ever going to Afghanistan. In Australia, I, I did high school. I did, um, I went and lived with my, my grandmother in Germany for a year after high school and then went back to Australia, finished university. Um, I studied environmental science and then did a chemistry stream uh, of that and, uh, did various different jobs, including running a bakery business and uh, working as a researcher at a university, being a healthcare worker with Indigenous people in Central Australia, trying trying my hand at, at quite a range of things and uh, ultimately travelling from Australia with my, my girlfriend at the time from Australia to firstly Japan and then from there to uh, we're in uh, Hungary and then we're in Morocco and then she got a job in Afghanistan and I followed followed her there so it was it was quite a quite a path between first getting the skateboard age five and ending up in Kabul Afghanistan at age 33 um, but I tried lots of things and I was really I was really hungry I was really looking for a big challenge myself. I was excited about being in Afghanistan. I'd read a lot about the country before before going and I was the person that I was the one that actually encouraged my girlfriend at the time to apply for the job in Afghanistan. She had the the option of a job in in Nepal and one in Afghanistan. I said go for the one in Afghanistan. That sounds way better. I want to go there. Um, so right. I kind of just tacked on to what she was doing, and that's how I ended up there. But it was really the right time for me, and I was I felt quite restless. And I'd applied myself at different jobs and to different things. And I found it really hard to just settle on something because it wasn't quite the right thing. You know, now, now looking back, um, that it was really, really good to have all of that experience before going to Afghanistan. It was really good that I'd traveled to over 40 countries. It was really helpful to have grown up in Papua New Guinea, which was also quite a quite an insecure environment, but one that I was very, very comfortable in uh, myself and had a had an amazing time growing growing up there. So yeah, that 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 was sort of the the mind state that I was in sort of arriving in Kabul. Yeah, I was I was hungry. I was hungry for a challenge. That's amazing. Uh, kind of like how you were hungry for learning how to skateboard because it was a difficult thing. It seems like that's part of your personality, right? 
Yeah, I think I think taking on challenges is is something that I really enjoy. And what it sounds like, what you're the way you explained it was that you know you spent a lot of your time in, in your formative years experimenting, and uh, none of those things seemed to really speak to you until you got to Cobble. How did you how did you find that skateboarding was a thing that you could build off of in Afghanistan? Like, did you start skating in the streets of Kabul? Did you see people skating? How did this all work for you? The the the, the whole point of going to Afghanistan was to go there together with my my girlfriend and to, to try to find a job for myself. And I had no plans to do anything together with a skateboard. It was just that I was a skateboarder, and uh, anywhere I went, my skateboard went as well. And I arrived in wintertime, so it was, uh, there was snow on the ground and it wasn't really, it was a very muddy, uh, <laughs> wet, cold place. Um, so it wasn't, uh, I didn't actually pull my skateboard out until uh, a couple of months later, a month or two, two later, and it was under my bed and I remember sort of pulling it out for the first time. Some other people actually found out that I had the skateboard and asked to borrow it. And uh, they went and skateboarded at a at a local school. It was uh, some some young Afghan men that were friends of a friend of mine uh, that that I that I knew, and they were all doing. Uh, they were studying with Ina, which was a project doing a lot of photo and uh, film film projects. And so these were these were kind of middle class guys that were all looking to leave. Afghanistan, and I think that they were especially attracted to the skateboard because it, it was something it was it was something quite Western, and it was it was something didn't really exist. And then I then I went out skateboarding with them, and they were really excited about it, and they got really into it. And so it was really these young middle class Afghan men that were the first ones to to try it out. I, I did have three skateboards with me, so. Instead of just bringing one skateboard, I did bring, I brought a couple in case I found somebody else to, to skateboard with. So it wasn't the intention to do, you know, skateboard lessons or get any Afghans into skateboarding. It was more like maybe there's another skateboarder in, in Kabul and they've forgotten to bring their skateboard along and maybe we can find somewhere to skate and I can lend them one of my boards. So that was, yeah, that yeah. was the original, original idea. But then, actually had these three boards and um it was it was possible to do to do little sessions and then kids would be around wherever we were skating and they would want to try it out as well so we sort of like popped the kids on the skateboard and then another of the guys that was uh that that i was skateboarding with an australian guy he was he was a photographer so he was taking photos of it and uh it just it was something quite fun fun to do because other people weren't skateboarding in Afghanistan. <laughs> we were. That's fascinating, Ali. Now, can you help us understand? Uh, I, by the way, I love the fact that you uh, your name's Oliver and you go by Ali, which is uh, like the foundational trick that all skateboarders have to learn if they're going to do other tricks, by the way, right? Yeah, I, I wasn't. <laughs> you have to learn how to do an Ollie yeah, before you go kickflip. I wasn't or, really yeah. well known as, as Ollie before starting Skaterstand. But yeah. uh, some people started calling me Ollie, and I just sort of, I just sort of went with it. Yeah, so well, it's, pretty, it's pretty much from from the Kabul days onwards, um, that 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 became uh, that became my nickname. Well, I think it's perfect. It's uh, it's quite appropriate given the work that you do. Um, so, for those that don't know, I mean, in the streets of Kabul, kids are everywhere. 
their kids running around, they're looking for stuff to do. And it, in many in many ways, there isn't that much for, for for young people to do. So they were attracted to seeing you and your friends and your colleagues um, skating. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. So these are these are mainly street working uh, kids. A lot of them don't go to school. And I mean, Kabul has grown from five hundred thousand to five million people in a in a pretty short amount of time, where people are escaping from violence in other parts of the country and coming in and unfortunately not all of the not all of the kids can um can go to school or a lot of the times the the children just have a way better income earning ability than the parents do so the kids are the kids are sent out on the street they come back with five dollars and that's a big deal and that can be sometimes much more than an adult can uh, can earn on a as a daily wage so the kids, the kids were around. Yeah, so kids are around. So help us understand, Ollie, how you went from having skateboarding be this like pastime to uh, starting an actual skate park. Help us understand how that was, how that all came to be, especially in the midst of a war zone, right? Yeah, that was a, that was a very very long very long pro, um, process. It, it started it started out as these sessions in the different parks and these sort of more middle class. Mm-hmm. Afghan Afghan kids that were boys that were really interested in doing it and then other kids started to do it and started to help those other kids learn to, to skateboard and I was especially excited when when girls wanted to try it because I didn't see girls playing any other sports there were boys flying kites there were boys riding bicycles around there were boys playing playing basketball or volleyball um, there were boys playing cricket girls didn't didn't do any of those activities at all, and yet some of these uh, girls were were brave enough to to step on a step on a skateboard, and I think that that was a fact of them being street working kids, and they were sort of very rough and ready, and they wanted they were ready to to try anything, and that was that was very exciting for me, and then I realised that. It wouldn't really be possible to teach the teach the girls so easily myself as a as a male and as a as a foreigner. It was a, it would be a lot more appropriate for girls to teach other girls. So to to encourage the girls to take part, um, it was really important to find some female instructors for them. So I try to recruit the the girls that were best at skateboarding to help the other girls learn how to to skateboard. And we found a fountain that was um, almost empty and we, we cleaned it out yeah. and we started to do skateboard sessions there. And the, the advantage with the fountain was, was twofold. A lot of the times in the open spaces, the kids were uh, trying to run off with my skateboards and uh, the, the fountain would actually contain people within a, within a space. So I had control over the, over the skateboard. I never lost a skateboard. I chased some kids some long, long distances through lots of, uh, <laughs> lots of through, past lots of houses and through lots of different neighborhoods when they tried to take off with my board. Um, but uh, in, the, in the fountain, it was all just within that one space. And just having it contained within the fountain as well, this is a, a spherical um, uh, round fountain that was, was perfect for skateboarding in. And 
what I would do is give the girls more time to skateboard than the boys. And because it was all contained in the in the space, the girls the girls would skateboard for ten minutes. The boys would then skateboard for five minutes. The girls would skateboard for ten minutes again. And uh, because the because the girls had more time on the skateboard, they got better at skateboarding than the boys. And then we started to hear about these things in from different people that were watching. They were saying, "Oh, this is this uh, girl sport." And there was, there was no other way that people could actually understand it because the girls were better than the boys. And so because the girls were better than the boys, it had to be a girl sport <laughs> because otherwise the boys would be better. <laughs> That's fascinating. And they didn't understand that you were giving the girls more time on the skateboards. They just assumed girls, were, girls had a propensity to be better at the skating. Yeah, I think people, a, a lot of people simply assume that boys are better at, better at sports than girls but what it comes down to is a matter of opportunity and um, if you've been given an opportunity from a very young age as I had at age four I could you know have a go at riding a bicycle at age five I had a skateboard and I was I was trying it out then you know over time you you, you get better at those things, but you've got to be allowed to do it in the first place. And I'm sure that there's a lot of five-year-old girls out there that want to ride a skateboard in lots of different countries that are not allowed to by their parents because they think that it's too dangerous. But it's uh, okay for a boy to do it. And then, of course, right. I mean, with, yeah, with, with opportunity comes, uh, come, come the skills. And so I, I then ran these competitions of the boys against the girls as well. And of course, the girls beat the boys, wow. and uh, that really opened up some, you know. It, and I, I just saw this opportunity growing. Of wow, you know, this is—it's a completely rigged competition, but this is kind of interesting because the rest, uh, quite a lot of things, are rigged against girls in in Afghan society in terms of their their opportunities. So why not, you know, why not do it the why not do it the other way? And um, the other thing that really got me really excited, I mean, this is, this is now probably by this stage I'd been doing it for a year, running these little sessions at the, at the fountain and I didn't have money to, to do it. I went to, there, there was a fundraiser that was, that was run in Australia and uh, I brought around, around 2,000 Australian dollars or about a thousand six hundred US dollars at the time, and that's 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 the way that um, it got off the ground. I rented out a house in Kabul, and I rented out other rooms to other foreigners, and that's how I actually didn't need to pay rent myself. And I was uh, yeah doing something that a lot of people just thought was completely crazy for a very long time, running these sessions. But I was so excited, and I was excited because there were kids from all different backgrounds that started to become part of these skateboard sessions. There were kids from the flats that were nearby. That was the Makarian. Um, it was quite a, a middle-class uh, neighbourhood and these were all flats that were built by the Russians when they were there. And uh, yeah. there, was, there were kids whose parents were pilots and engineers and doctors. And then there were these kids that were basically forced by their families to, to work on the street and sell chewing gum or cigarettes or bottle, bottles of water or tissues in the traffic, you know, big for money uh, essentially as well. And 
there were kids from all different um, ethnic backgrounds as well. And the ethnic yeah, back- that's back- really interesting. Ethnic backgrounds don't necessarily mix mix so much. So, for example, kids that are playing cricket would be more Pashtu than from other ethnic backgrounds. Um, there was Hazara kids played Taekwondo, did more Taekwondo, <laughs> and the skateboarding sort of became this space that all these different ethnicities but also different social classes mixing. That's really interesting. So let's let's unpack that thought. Like, why do you think everybody, whether, you know, they were Hazara, Pashtun, Tajik, whatever their ethnic background, whatever their socioeconomic background, what do you think it was about skating that brought them together? Was it that it, that it was just so new and novel? Was it that there was no established, like, hierarchy already? Like, what was it about skating that allowed everybody to come together? I, I think it's quite similar to what attracted me in the first place. It's incredibly fun. And yes, it really helped that there wasn't any sort of social norms. It didn't have any baggage as, and it wasn't labelled as anything or it, it sort of gained this label as a sport for girls, uh, which was which was a pretty pretty exciting one. It was something that some of the kids had seen, um, I think that there was a television advertisement for some sort of soft drink from India that had skateboarders in it. And so it was seen as something very new and cool for the kids. And the yeah. fact that nobody yeah. had the usual social pecking order didn't exist there. So I also created the, the conditions for that. Um, a lot of the time, the oldest teenage males would try to like take over and I had control over yeah. the boards and I gave it to the youngest kids or the youngest girls to try out. So it was a relatively safe space for those kids. But again, it wasn't, I mean, some of those, some of those kids were also taking risks to do skateboarding sessions. Um, some of their right. uh, older brothers and sisters didn't like that they were that they were doing it. Um, I heard that some of the kids had been beaten by family members, by their parents, or by by brothers and sisters for for skateboarding. So I think that it was something that was just very fun and new, and didn't have yeah. didn't have a social stigma yet. And so that, that's why it was very important for me to, for it not to be seen as a Western activity. And so I really made sure that I didn't show the kids any, any videos, any photos, any magazines of skateboarding. All of that was kept completely away. And I, I even almost went as far really? as to not actually show them any tricks so that they would actually create their own little skateboarding culture something that would be palatable to their parents something that would be okay for the communities that they lived in and I was very very aware it was something very special and there were a lot of different things that could have disrupted that or that could have ruined the chance that that we had there um, in terms of bring these kids from different backgrounds together, ethnic backgrounds, bring these kids from different um, socioeconomic classes. And, and what was interesting was that the girls were much, much better than the boys at 
crossing these boundaries in terms of ethnicity or social class. The boys were still grouped as the poor kids and the rich kids and the girls were creating a much more fluid group much more easily and they wanted to have contact with each other and and become friends with each other and they did it. They created these friendships and that was, to me, something very, very special to see. Something that I uh, witnessed working in Indigenous communities in, in Central Australia was that the Australian government had invested billions and billions of dollars in, in trying to help Indigenous people in, in, in Australia and as much money as was being uh, put towards solving this problem in inverted commas, um, nothing was happening because there was no trust. There was no trust between white and black Australia because Aboriginal children had been taken away from their their families and a whole lot of really bad things had happened for a really long time. And so I sort of saw this similar thing happening in Afghanistan. I had no background in international development whatsoever. I was in this new space in Kabul. I saw inordinate amounts of money just being splashed around all over the place. And to me, it was really clear that without trust, that money wasn't going to have a a large effect or the effect that it should. And uh, a lot of the people that were spending the money were like, Oh, you know, when we spend, when we invest this amount of money in uh, Norway or in the US or in (laughs) whatever country in the world, they, they see results. But that's because there's an inherent trust that exists in, in society. And what I saw in the, in, in the fountain with these kids skateboarding was trust was being built. And that was the basis. That was the basis for everything. Yeah. If you were to, if you want to start to solve problems in, in Afghanistan, in my mind, yeah. you had to start by building trust. And I had that happening and it was happening through these girls that had a chance to, to skateboard, to make friends with, with other girls of the, the same age, but came from a different background. And I really saw that trust yeah. as the building block for whatever comes next. Skateboarding sessions weren't the answer to everything, but they were definitely a step in the right direction. And that's that's what really encouraged me to then think bigger and say, well, what else might be possible? And the, the, the fact that girls were only able to take part in the these fountain skate sessions up to the age of 11 or so was really sad because when we ran these competitions, the girls were the best up to age 10, 11, and then all after 11, it was all the boys. But that's because girls weren't actually allowed to take part any, anymore. And there were a couple of girls that were around that age, uh, 10, 11, 12, where they started to, to skate with us and then they couldn't skate anymore. And that just made me think, well, how would it be possible for them to continue to skateboard? And then it was clear it had to be an indoor space it had to be a space where right. it was a female-only right. environment to be culturally appropriate. And that's where these ideas to actually develop a, a school a school came from. So very, very long yeah. answer to your, <laughs> your question that you posed 20 minutes ago. <laughs> <laughs> 
That's good. I like that. It's good that you're riffing. Please go ahead. Yeah, yeah. So Ollie, that's amazing. So Skatistan is not just a place now where people, where young people go to skate. It's also a place where they're educated in other ways too, right? So you have, it's essentially a school. It's a place where young people can go to learn about skating, to be active, to gain friendships, to learn how to trust each other. But it's also a place in which now you have teachers that educate young people in this safe space, in this environment in which their families are comfortable sending their daughters, their families are comfortable sending their young boys. So in this way, it's a transformative space in which you know, young girls can go be exposed to something that's totally novel and new and come out being a lot more confident, right? Is that the experience that you're essentially trying to have with the school, with us, with Skatistan? Yeah, I, I think it's it's definitely a place that the kids feel like is their own. I think that they feel a sense of agency there. Um, they feel like change is, is, is possible and it's very important that they feel like it's a, it's a safe space um, and that they can learn how to express themselves, learn how to take some risks and try things out. The whole connection to education came from the kids themselves, at, you know, right back from the fountain days. To, to get the girls involved, I needed to um, have female instructors to have the female instructors, I, I met with the family of one of the girls, uh, Fazilla, who was uh, who was really good at skateboarding, and her parents had taken her out of out of the the fifth grade, and she just wanted to go back to school. So I thought, yeah. well, okay, I'll do you a deal. You be a skateboard instructor. I'll pay you one dollar a session. The, the deal is that the parents need to allow you to go back to school. So they'd taken her out of school so that she could spend more time earning money, working on the street, um, selling things. I thought it was, was such an amazing chance. She wanted to go back to school. Could I help her get back to school? So that's where the idea of creating an indoor space where the kids could feel safe but also could learn. We started to create classes especially around art because we wanted uh, children from all different backgrounds to be able to take part in the lessons and for there to be a somewhat level playing field where it was something new to everybody and not that certain kids would have an advantage over the others because maybe they have a computer at home or maybe they've uh, already go to school and uh, they would be doing well. So we started with that, but the the kids all asked. Um, a lot of the kids weren't going to regular school, and they said, "Hey, we want to go to regular school as well." So again, we listened to the kids, and we we developed a back to school program, which is an accelerated learning program that goes over three years, and they do um, three years, the first three years of regular Afghan school, and one year with us, and uh, then they we we help them to get back into the the fourth grade in, in regular school. And uh, yeah. we also have a youth leadership program. So they're the, the main parts of the, the education that we, that we provide. That's great, Ali. Can you help us understand in terms of numbers? Like, for, first and foremost, what year did you establish Skatistan? How many students do you have initially? And then how many students do you have now in, in Afghanistan? And then how many students do you have also in Cambodia and South Africa? Help us understand in terms of numbers, how, how fast and how big you've grown. 
So I first went to Afghanistan in 2007 and the sessions in 2007 were probably with uh, five or ten regular regular kids. In 2008, it grew to about 70, 70 children um, simply around in and around the fountain and then building the school when we opened in um, October 2009, we had... Uh, 360 uh, places, but half of the places were for for girls and half of the places were for boys. And we only enrolled as many boys as we had girls. So we we managed to get about uh, 165 girls. So we started with 330 right at the right at the start. But um, there were around 200 boys on our waiting list when we when we opened um in 2000 and 2009 and uh, yeah. from from there we grew the capacity of kabul is around uh, 500 students weekly the capacity in mazar sharif is around 1200 and we we have on average around 1500 students weekly in afghanistan uh, at the moment and uh, there's there's another 500 or so students every week in South Africa, and around 300 in in Cambodia. So it varies, but at at the moment we've got 2,800 students uh, registered registered Amazing. around the around around the world and that take part in uh, our activities. And last year, um, if we count participations, so one student going to one class at Skaterstan, we ran over 100,000 participations in our classes globally last year. You said 100,000. That's amazing. And uh, this experience is transformational for the students, I imagine, all over. Yeah, I think it's, it's, it's absolutely transformational. You've you got to imagine uh, a girl that really wants to go out of the house and explore and and try things out but is is told she she can't go to school she can't uh, take part in any uh, sport activities you know you you have to do the dishes instead and um you know <laughs> clean up or do the do the washing or fetch some water and going to skater stand would be amazing for a kid in um in the US <laughs> Let alone a place where you can't do anything. We've got the best skateboards. We've got the best – the ramps were built by one of the best ramp builders in the in the world, Andreas Schutzenberger. We've got a climbing wall in Kabul, the, the kids – and also in, in Mazar Sharif. They can learn to do so many – have access to so many different really, really fun activities – with yeah. with clay, with musical instruments, with even just riding a bike, <laughs> you can you can go to skater stand and and ride a ride a bike. That is so mind blowing for for so many so many of the kids, especially in Afghanistan, and especially for the for the girls. Yeah, yeah, Ollie. I have to ask you. Um, so it's it's evident through this conversation that there are major cultural barriers in which you had to deal with, in which the girls had to deal with. What other barriers did you have to deal with? I mean, in the context of a war zone, I can't imagine the security situation being optimal, right? With suicide bombs happening, with you know infighting, and I mean 
people going from point A to point B, it's never a secure, it's never certain you're going to get there. So what sorts of barriers did you guys have to deal with in terms of security? Well, we, we, we always, uh, we always tried to, to make things as safe as we possibly could. Um, I was warned by lots of people not to actually, you know, run skateboard sessions at the fountain in the first place and that I was basically um, taking an enormous risk while we were doing sessions at the fountain. There were some kids that uh, there was a suicide uh, bomber exploded his, his vest very, very close to where the fountain was and there were, there were a couple of kids that would regularly skate that were nearby and uh, thankfully, none of them were hurt. So, uh, I, I had a had a very realistic view of what the what the risks were. But it was, uh, you know, over over time, we just tried to do things in a in a safe way within uh, yeah. within in in Kabul, where within the Olympic Committee ground. So there's an extra layer of protection. But I mean, for the for the students themselves, we've had staff and students involved in uh, where suicide attacks have taken place, and staff and students have have died in um, suicide attacks. And there's there's been over two thousand suicide attacks in Kabul since I started. So yeah, it's just a matter of being at the wrong place in the wrong time. And uh, unfortunately, the for very poor children. They're often in places that are dangerous, and that is um, there. There has been some students of Skaterstan have been. Uh, they were near a Shia mosque that was uh, attacked at, at one point, and also at a wedding hall uh, f- fairly recently. Uh, a staff member died in a in an attack on a on a wedding hall. Um, we had a few staff and students uh, died in an attack on a, a young kid that went to explode his vest at the ISAF HQ and a lot of the, uh, the, the kids that went to Skaterstan would hang around because sometimes soldiers would know that they were skateboarding or uh, knew that they liked skateboarding and would bring them skateboards and then they'd skateboard outside ISAF HQ and obviously those places are then... The most dangerous places for those those kids kids to be, but um, it takes a, it takes an emotional and psychological toll for sure. It's it's very yeah. difficult to be to be in those uh, to be in that environment. And I mean, I lived in I lived in, in Afghanistan for seven years, and um, it was there was quite a quite a readjustment period after leaving. I mean, I, yeah, I, I, I can empathize. I, I really, yeah. I really don't like New Year's Eve in um, in Berlin, where everybody's letting off firecrackers like crazy. I'm still, I'm still very, uh, very sensitive to. I mean, every time we'd hear a, a big blast go off, you just feel it in the pit of your stomach. It was like people had just died, and horrible, horrible thing. You know, it, it was just, it was just awful. And it was it was really hard to just sort of get the motivation to start again. I mean, what what we what we're involved in is is building hope. And every time a every, every time a blast occurs, an attack occurs, you you lose a little bit of that that hope. Yeah, it's not easy. The way I would describe Afghanistan is is that it's this place 
that has so much potential and there's so much willingness to, uh, especially amongst the children, to want more and to want something better. But then these incidents of you know suicide bombings happen, attacks happen, and it just slowly, slowly, slowly chips away. And um, it takes its toll. It takes its toll on everybody. I mean, the violence, uh, like you said, 2,000 attacks in Kabul proper since you, while you were there. I mean, that stuff, doesn't, that stuff doesn't make it on the news, right? And this is something that people in the context of Afghanistan have to deal with every single day. Mm-hmm. And I think I, I found that fact that everybody needed to deal with it on a daily basis and that they took it in their stride so so well it was there there just seemed to be so much resilience you know these are people that can't just get a passport and leave the country as much as they would like to i had a passport and i could leave at any point at all and i think that that was that was very very humbling just the way that people got on on with their lives in in incredibly incredibly diff- difficult circumstances and i just yeah. saw i just saw evidence of what we were doing um you know helping that resilience and just giving something that the something to the kids that they could somehow hang on to just keep on keep yeah. on going or even just process some really difficult things that they need to deal with in their in their lives Maybe they've got one member or multiple members of their their family are addicted to opiates. Maybe there are you know there's somebody in the family that's involved in a forced marriage. Maybe there are there's violence in so many so many of the on, on the streets of Kabul. To be a kid, you've you've got to navigate all of those all of those spaces that are, are very difficult yeah. to be in. And um, if if Skaterstan can just help that tiny little bit and give them just a little bit of respite from from all that, um, yeah. it was it was worthwhile to do what we were doing. Yeah, I think so too. And it, what's really interesting about what you're talking about, Ali, is that um, being in Afghanistan, I was there for three years as a combat interpreter, and I lived uh, amongst uh, American Marines, and then also spent a lot of time in Kabul, where half my family lives, and uh, I got to see the civilian life. What I learned about the people there is that, uh, what I learned about human beings is that human beings, especially in the in a context of Afghanistan, are stronger than the thing that's trying to defeat them. And uh, Afghans will show you that every single day when they get up. And um, that in itself, I think, is really inspirational. And it's amazing that you're talking about it in the context of, of children. And so um, were the challenges that you dealt with in Afghanistan different from the challenges that you faced, let's say, in South Africa or Cambodia, where Skatistan also operates? Yeah, I think it's it, it's definitely difficult to be a to be a kid in in South Africa, in, in Johannesburg, in in Phnom Penh from from a poor from a poor family. There, there there's lots of lots of challenges that these 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 kids have, uh, and again. Violence in the home is is something that is very very hard to get away from uh, for for a lot of the kids. I think it's more from uh, from an operational standpoint. Yeah, the, there are uh, there's different different challenges, but Afghanistan is is definitely in a in a in a class of its own, and Kabul with 
2,000, 2,000 suicide attacks in, you know, it's 20, 20 a month, pretty, pretty intense. And I mean, going back to what the kids actually go through and the way that they value the, the, the program, I, I heard a story of a kid that actually would walk, I think about six or seven kilometers. So what is that? Five, he'd walk five miles and he was a little kid. Yeah. And he was walking barefoot in wintertime five miles to come to the skater stand. And at skater stand, he'd get a shoe. And But it was just like, I can't do that. I couldn't do that in <laughs> in a million years. I can't, even, <laughs> I can't go out of the, the house in wintertime without two, two pairs of thick socks and a big, you know, big hiking boots. Like yeah, Afghan, yeah, Afghan yeah. kids will- If you go outside. <laughs> Afghan, yeah, it's a it's a place where there's enormous challenges, and and the challenges in these other places are also also big. I mean, we we had riots in in Johannesburg um, in September last year that were we had to close the close the facility down. There was a lot of the students that we had were also in illegal housing, and then people came and you know threw the families out of these uh, out of these buildings and. Right next to where Skater Stand was, there was they were you know throwing beds out of ten out of the tenth story um, windows. So I mean it's yeah. it, it's gnarly in other places as well, and what these kids have to deal with on a on a daily basis is is incomprehensible to most of us. But I, I really love what you said about the the human spirit being so strong you know as as hard as all of the conditions in afghanistan are it doesn't stop people living their living their day-to-day lives as as at all nobody nobody's just giving up and i think on a on a personal level that was really interesting to to me and i think that that was something that really attracted me to afghanistan and made me want to stay and made me want to keep on doing things because yeah. my own horizons somehow were so much past what I actually thought I was capable of. And I could only do those in an environment like Kabul, which was sort of nothing like, nothing like anywhere else. And that was an exciting journey of not, not self-improvement, but like gaining, gaining experience. That's uh, there's a really there's a really interesting um, study that the U.S. Army did quite a quite a few years ago. Maybe you were even part of that study. And they were looking at um, PTSD and um, you know what were the what were the effects of, of war in, in places like Afghanistan, Iraq, and um, all of those people. And they saw that half of the people it was just like a bell shaped curve in terms of. Half of the people were affected by stress and had this post-traumatic stress disorder, and around half of the half of the people actually grew in those environments. So, I think that that's a, that's an interesting thing. And I, I mean, if we're going to have an apocalypse in the world, Afghans are going to be definitely uh, doing a whole lot better than uh, people in many other countries. That's right. They're, that's a, whole right. Lot, that's they're right. a whole lot. They're a whole lot tougher. Right. I can, I can, I can definitely <laughs> attest to that. 
Oh, that's wonderful. I'm sure many of your friends would, uh, would many of your Afghan friends would appreciate that. I certainly do. I certainly do. Um, Ali, I'd love to ask you about um, something that's new that's happening as it pertains to Skatistan. You guys have a film that's made about Skatistan called Learning to Skateboard in a War Zone if you're a girl. This is an Oscar-nominated film, correct? Tell us about it. What's going on with it? What's the latest? Yeah, that's uh, super super exciting for us. So we we, we got involved with with the project uh, a couple of couple of years ago, and it was pitched to us by by A and E um, Network in, in the US, and a couple of uh, female documentary producers were excited to do a film with all female crew. To, to cover girls that were skateboarding in Afghanistan. And this was a really exciting story for them to cover. And they, they finished the film together with A&E and, and Grain Media. So Orlando von Einseidel um, did uh, a film on Skaterstan back in 2010 that was um, really, really cool. It was cool, uh, to live and skate Kabul. And... So we engaged Orlando again and, and Grain Media and, yeah, the film's been doing amazingly well. It, it was first at Tribeca and it won the, the, the short documentary section. I can't exactly remember each, each of the festivals that it's gone to, but it's, uh, it's won quite a, quite a lot of them and uh, it was nominated for a, for a BAFTA um, the British Film, Film Awards, and and now it's actually nominated for an Oscar as well, which is absolutely amazing. And yeah. um, it's been super exciting for all of the team, and I really hope that it uh, brings some awareness to to Skaterstan and um, these programs that we're running day in day out in Kabul, in Mazar Sharif, um, and yeah. um, and all of those yeah. all of those other other places. And the film uh, shows our back-to-school program and it follows a class of girls over the, the course of the year where they cover the three grades of regular school in, in one year at, at Skaterstan and it shows they're progressing in the classroom and progressing at, at skateboarding. And it's a, it's a really, really sweet, beautiful film. Well, that's wonderful. And it just goes to show that the work that you're doing is vastly important and uh, the world should know about it, which is why I wanted to talk to you about... Um, the work that you do on my podcast and uh, to tell my audience what you do and how important the work that you do is. And, um, you know, I'd like to ask you a question. I'd like to ask you what, ha what has Skatistan taught you, right? I think, you know, everyone's learning about Skatistan and whether it's your students, the citizens of Skatistan, people that admire the organization, it teaches us that uh, in the context of a place in which there's so much darkness, there can be light. Um, that's what it's taught me. And I think that's a beautiful thing. And I'm curious to know what Skatistan has taught you about life and yourself and all that. Uh, an Afghan, an Afghan friend of mine gave me, uh, gave me a compliment. He said, what you're doing is it's like you're keeping a fire on in the corner of a small house that has lost its doors and lost its windows. And it's super cold outside, but you're creating a little bit of warmth where a few people can huddle around the fire. You know, I, I really didn't think I got, I went to Afghanistan and I was really frustrated with myself that I couldn't do more. I, I felt like I didn't have any 
skills to to offer. I wasn't a doctor or I wasn't an engineer or I wasn't an architect or or something that could be helpful or useful and move move things forward. But actually in the end I did have just a very broad range of experience and skills that I was able to sort of tack together in a very new way. I'm very, very grateful to Afghanistan and to Skaterstan for, for giving me that opportunity to use all of these skills and experiences that I'd built up that I didn't really think yeah. were of any use at all. And I think what I've got out of it and what I'd like to share with other people is that you too can make enormous change and difference even when you feel completely powerless. It's all about just taking a step it's even just taking the first step. Um, you know, it, it took me a lot of courage just to pull the skateboard from underneath my bed in, in Kabul because I was embarrassed. What would people think? Like, would it be appropriate right. to actually do it? It wasn't just a, a natural thing. It was, it was something that was so, so difficult. All of the all of the skills that I've had to learn over the over the way. I've got I've got ninety full time staff now. Um, I've, I've gained enormous opportunities and uh, the ability to to build build skills in all sorts of all sorts of areas. And with with such a growing organisation, uh, it's it's allowed yeah. me a lot of a lot of different a lot of different opportunities. You know what I really love about your story, Ali, is that uh, you went to Afghanistan not knowing what to expect. Afghanistan being in a in a war zone, and you feeling as though you're inadequate. You're not a doctor, you're not an engineer, you're not able to contribute. But I think what your story tells us is that the things that you value and the things that you love, if presented and shared, may make a difference and may even grow into something that can change people's lives. And I think that's a beautiful story. I think the story of you trying something totally different in Afghanistan is um, the spark uh, to that fire in that house without the, uh, without the doors or the windows. So, um, you know, kudos to you for having the courage to try that. And, uh, I think everybody here uh, is really grateful for you for having the courage to do that. So my hat's off to you, sir. I just want to say thank you. And, um, if it's possible, I'd like to do what's called a, a rapid fire session. So I'm going to ask you a couple questions and just, uh, cool. tell us what comes to mind first, if you could, sir. Okay. Okay. So, who was your favorite skateboarder growing up? My favorite skateboarder was Steve Caballero. That's right. That's right. Good. He's a good one. Um, and I know his name because I used to skate too. He was, uh, wasn't he part of the, uh, the Pal Peralta team? Yeah, he was part of the, part of the Bones Brigade with Tony Hawk and uh, Lance Mountain and Mike McGill. That's right. That's right. That's right. Okay. Second question. Um, what would you tell your 20-year-old self? That you don't know it all. Um, you're always you're always learning, and that's okay. You don't need to be an expert at uh, doing doing something. Just jump in, and you'll learn as you go along. That's great. That's great. If you had one superpower, what would it be? I think I'd like to know all languages spoken in the world. I think that would be amazing to make connections with everybody everywhere. Oh, that's a great one, Ollie. Good. That's that's fantastic. Okay. How would your friends describe you in one word? Enthusiastic. Yeah, I would concur. That's good.
What do you wish you knew about your parents? What their struggles were. I lost my father at age 14. And um, so, you know, a big part of the story is, is not there. And I was very cl- close, to my, close to my dad. And uh, I find it hard to pull stories out of my mum. <laughs> oh, thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Um, what is one time period that you'd like to spend one day in and why? I'd definitely go back to the, the fountain 2008. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, in retrospect, it seems like a really fun endeavor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But while you're in it, it's not so fun, is it? It's hard. It's hard. Oh, man, it was such a struggle. I was, I was living on $10 a week sometimes. Seriously, 500 apps is what I, what I had. It was really, it was really tough. And other foreigners were, were on salary sometimes of $10,000 a month working for the UN and doing these different, yeah. different things. And it was so tough and so horrible and, and yet so, yet so beautiful. So if you're in a really tough situation, maybe you'll actually also look back at that time and wish, wish for it again. So you never know. Yeah, it just goes to show that in the human condition, you know, if we're struggling and we're sacrificing for something that matters, in the end, it's always worth it. I think that's how we're wired as human beings, actually. No, I I definitely agree. Yeah. Okay, last one. Ali, what is your message for the world, sir? My message for the world is very simply that all humans everywhere are so similar to each other. And we've got so much to, to learn from one another. There's, there's very, very little that, that actually divides us if we pull together. Well, I think that's beautiful. Uh, Ali, I just want to say that I sincerely appreciate your time and I wish you, your team, and all the citizens of Skatistan nothing but the best. I look forward to watching um, uh, the new film and uh, I wish you nothing but the best. Thank you, Ali. Thanks so much. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe and leave a review. You can also email me with feedback at storiesoftransformationpodcast at gmail.com. You can also join the conversation and find others like you by following us on Instagram at stories underscore of underscore transformation and on Facebook, Stories Transformation. You can find all this information on my website as well, www.baktashahadi.com. That's B-A-K-T-A-S-H. A-H-A-D-I dot com.